Our scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 37. Would you please stand for the hearing of God's word? Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron to come to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers. He said, Tell me, please, where, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away. For I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bringing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. And his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Amen. You may be seated. Well, go ahead and keep uh, your Bible open to that chapter 37 of Genesis or uh, the passage in the worship folder as well. That's where we're going to be camped out this morning as we continue our series in the book of Genesis. Now, obviously, this is quite a somber story. 
And in order to interpret it right, we need to set it in the overall context of this story in the book of Genesis. We're looking at the, the Joseph narrative. And obviously, the original hearers, like many of us, knew how the story ended. Um, and so, the narrator of uh, Genesis uh, gave an interpretive grid for understanding all these elements of the story so that they could be rightly received when they were taught. So, if you do have a Bible open, I'd like you to turn to Genesis chapter 50, 5 0, Genesis chapter 50, and uh, verse 20. Uh, this, I think, is the lens through which um, we are to interpret this Joseph story. And uh, the author of Genesis uh, records how Joseph understood what was happening as he looked back on his own experience. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. You intended or meant, or planned. You intended to harm me, but God intended, or meant, or planned it for good. So when we read about all these um, evil, you meant it for evil, all this harm and distress that is being planned. Joseph, when he looks back, and we also are meant to look back, to discern how God planned it for good, for that which is now being accomplished, the saving of many lives. This is the purpose of the story. And of course, today in our culture and our time, it is very important that we look face on the difficulties that our culture and our society is immersed within. Uh, we know of much evil today, many terrorist acts. And many of us are trying to figure out, not only at a very practical level, what is our right response, but also, and fueled by the theological, theological level, uh, the true way of looking at life. Uh, it, uh, the French, one of the uh, candidates for the presidency of France, as they go through an election very soon, said this about terrorism. It is an imponderable problem and will be part of our daily lives for years to come. Now, that is the reality that we, uh, we, we face today. We can no longer, I think, pretend as a civilization, as a society, indeed as a church that is in the Western civilization, that we do not face times that are in some ways troubled, in many ways troubled. Of course, there's much peace and security too, still, but not a week goes by, it seems, that we do not hear of some vile terrorist act. So that's the macro level. But then also there's the micro level, not that it's less significant, but that it isn't something that everyone in every place is talking about, but affects local communities and individual lives and families. Uh, Pastor Ben already prayed for the situation, the tragedy that uh, occurred uh, just yesterday at Wheaton College. Uh, there's a wandering 
that such events inevitably cause in our minds, where was God? How do I put together a theodicy? Or even more practically, how do I worship God when faced by evil, suffering, trauma, difficulty? And it's my um, belief that uh, the story of Joseph that is unvarnished and does not pretend about the depths of depravity of some of the key players in that story is intended to drill down into our minds the reality of humanity's evil plans and yet a bigger reality too. God plans it for good. Now, there are many ways to try and get your mind and your heart engaged and around this truth that the Bible teaches throughout its pages that man may plan it for evil, but God plans it for good. You can do it in all sorts of technical ways, but the way that this part of the Bible is doing it is through story. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm just going to walk us through the story of Genesis chapter 37, uh, which really has three movements to it and then conclude with some reflections on the providence of God. So the three movements, first of all, there's the search, uh, which is verses 12 to 17. Where are these brothers? What are they doing? And Joseph is sent to find them. And then there is the violence, verses 18 to 28. And isn't it encouraging that the Bible does not hide from the humanity of even its heroes? Because it wants us to enter into that reality, but yet also enter into the bigger reality of God's plan. And so there is the violence, verses 18 to 28. And then the third movement is the mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, the mourning, verses 29 to 36. So, first of all, the search, verses 12 to 17. And we have to ask ourselves, why are all the brothers in Shechem, verse 12? Shechem was where they had massacred the sons of Hamor quite recently in chapter 34. Are they returning to the scene of their crime? Are they still furious about the violation of their sister Dinah? Of course, Shechem was also where Abraham had first set up worship of God. And so it may not be um, for that prior reason. It may just be that's where their flocks were wandering But at any rate, it seems to me their location is used by the narrator to suggest that their boil of anger against Joseph was getting ready to burst. 
Uh, Joseph goes off obediently at his father's command, and again, we have to ask ourselves, why did his father send him off to see his brothers? Didn't his father realize that there was tension in the family? He seems more concerned about some external threat that his brothers might be facing rather than the internal threat of division in the family. At any rate, unwittingly, Joseph walks into serious danger. He cannot find them at Shechem. Shechem is quite a long walk, actually, from Hebron. It's about 45 miles or so north. He's following the great central ridge, sort of spine path that the patriarchs took down through the middle of Israel. It's about 45 miles. And then verse 17, apparently randomly, though nothing in this story is random because God is planning it for good, even though men are planning it for evil as well. But apparently randomly, verse 17, he comes across someone else and he asks where his brothers are. And he gets directions to uh, go to Dothan, which is another fair walk about 15 miles or so further north. Uh, Joseph is 17 or thereabouts now, vulnerable, clueless, young, and inexperienced. And now we come to the violence. Verses 18 to 28. The brothers um, spot Joseph from a distance, verse 18. It's almost like they are using binoculars to hunt him. There he is. And um, they recognize him. We wonder why. Presumably because Joseph was wearing his special multicolored royal robe. <laughs> Again, we're struck by the foolishness of Joseph's father and Joseph's own deaf ear himself to the feelings of his brothers. He's, as it were, wandering around, carrying his sports trophy with him. The trophy that he got, and his brothers did not. Well, the brothers start to plot. They're going to kill him, or more forcefully, it might be put, murder him. They know full well what they're doing. The phrase, come, let us kill him, in the Greek Bible, only occurs in three places here and then in two of the gospel accounts of the parable of the tenants. When the owner of the vineyard sends the son finally to the rebellious tenants and they say, come, let us kill him, exactly the same words in the Greek. Um, Why are they so angry? Verse 19, here comes this dreamer, or literally the master dreamer. He thinks he's boss because he dreams great dreams. Well, we'll see about that. Reuben, uh, the oldest brother, tries to intervene. Verse 21, why does Reuben do this? Uh, Perhaps he feels some sense of responsibility as the oldest brother, maybe. 
It may also be that Reuben is working out his own guilty feelings and trying to make up for them. You see, not so long ago, Reuben had violated his own father's concubine, Bilhah. Again, this is all about as bad as it can get. His father not only had two wives, uh, wrong from the biblical standards of Genesis chapter 2, he had a concubine too, doubly, trebly wrong, and his son, it seems, the most natural reading of the passage there is, his son was intimate with his father's concubine. It's like something from the front cover of the National Enquirer. Well, for whatever reason, Reuben does try to make things better by suggesting a less awful thing to do. He's, uh, he's saying, just throw Joseph in a pit. And then, for some reason, Reuben disappears. Why does he disappear? Maybe he's run off to get reinforcements to rescue Joseph. Maybe there's a sort of back entrance to this pit or another way down that will be hidden from his brothers. And he's gone off to sneak down to get Joseph and take him away. Well, for whatever reason, it's not wise to leave these murderous people with their sacrificial lamb at their mercy. Again, I want to remind us of this interpretive grid. You planned it for evil, but God planned it for good. The reality is God is sovereign whether we believe it or not, accept it or not, want it or not. The sovereignty of God is not an idea, it's a declaration of a truth. And yet, this story, I think, is encouraging us along these lines. For those who yield to the sovereignty of God, there is in every burden a purpose, every suffering a call, every evil a greater good, every cross a most glorious crown. He's in the pit. We're told, verse 24, the pit is uh, empty, it has no water in it, which is a detail that strikes us as surprising. Apparently, um, ancient readers would otherwise have wondered whether Joseph would have drowned for pits or cisterns or wells at the time. It would have been assumed that they would have water or at least be very muddy so that uh, Joseph would uh, have drowned down there. Be a bit like saying you were thrown into Wrigley Field, and everyone would assume there'd be a huge crowd unless you made it clear that uh, it was not game day and it was empty. The pit is empty. In this part of the story, or this account of the story, we hear nothing from Joseph. But later in Genesis, in chapter 42, we find out from the brothers themselves that actually Joseph, right there in the pit, had been constantly calling out to them to have compassion on him over and over again. So we need to hear that voice of Joseph saying, will you have pity on me, calling out to his brothers as his brothers, verse 25, sit down for a quick bite to eat. Their victim is in pain and agony as they chomp down on a good sandwich. 
Well, as uh, chance would have it, except it isn't chance, it's providence. As Matthew Henry put it, providence so ordered it. Traders come by. Now, Dothan lies near one of the great ancient trade routes from Mesopotamia to Egypt, went through Israel, and right next to one of the sort of main highways of this massive trading, and so there are traders there. Uh, They are Ishmaelites or Midianites, which confuses some people. They're called by both names. It's probably a bit like saying you're from Chicagoland and from Wheaton, two different ways of describing the same reality. Anyway, they are then given an opportunity to sell him into slavery, and they do so. They are rid of that pesky kid once and for all. Except, of course, they're not. What they don't realize is that as they are doing this very evil deed, they are actually fulfilling Joseph's dreams, not defeating them. For yes, he will go to pit, to a pit, and then to a prison, and then to a palace. Well, the third movement, we've had the search and the violence. Now we come to the mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, the mourning, verses 29 to 36. Uh, Reuben is obviously devastated, uh, verse 29. And the others go in to cover up their sin mode. They dip Joseph's robe in blood, verse 31. How deliciously ironic. (laughs) That robe, that special robe, is covered in blood. They send it on to their dad, verse 32. At least that seems the most natural reading of what the text means. They send the robe to their dad. Apparently, they're so estranged from uh, their father, or they're so hard-hearted, or they're so cowardly now, they cannot even brazenly tell their lie to the old man face to face. It's interesting, they never out and out say that a wild animal killed Joseph. And perhaps they think somehow inside that if they don't actually say it, they're not actually lying. Such are the excuses that uh, we often make when we tell lies. We're just deceiving, not lying. But of course, they intend Jacob to be led to that conclusion, and Jacob is led to that conclusion. Verse 33, he identifies the robe. And then we come to these extraordinary short sentences of verse 33, which indicate his extreme emotion. My son's robe, ferocious animal, torn to pieces. I suspect it's a quotation of what he said at that moment. And so he mourns for his son, of course, verse 34. But this mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, this mourning goes on and on, verse 35. 
Whereas uh, it, the formal time of mourning was about a week for a parent, uh, Genesis 50 verse 10, or a month for Moses, Deuteronomy 34 verse 8, this mourning, Jacob vows, will never end, verse 35. Imagine how his brothers felt. Even as he mourns for Joseph, he's making it clear who he favors. Oh yes, he's going to mourn until he dies. Uh, goes to Sheol, the grave, that shadowy place of the dead. At this moment, he doesn't even seem emotionally to have hope for a happy life afterwards for him or his son. Or perhaps um, he's saying he's going to mourn himself to death. Reminds me a little of... Um, Charles Dickens's great expect- expectations of Miss Havisham constantly mourning, if you know that story. So there's not much that is uh, cheery in this passage. As I say, we've got to put it in the context of the overall interpretation of Genesis 50, verse 20. You planned it for evil, God planned it for good. There's not much here of that planning for good. But there is a hint. Verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Joseph is being put by God exactly where he wants him. Such is the extraordinary sovereignty of God, even in the midst of evil. You know, if our idea of God's goodness only pertains when we are on the mountaintops of life's experiences and walking in the warm sunshine, then we understand goodness, but we do not understand God. Our God is able to take a slave from a pit to a prison and then to a palace to save his numerous people. Our God redeems through the cross and sovereignly defeats evil when he rises again from the dead. See, my goal here this morning from this passage, interpreting it as I think the narrator, the original author, intended through the lens of Genesis 50 verse 20, is that we as a church would grasp firmly God's providential ordering of events, good and bad, for the saving purposes of God. And that we as individuals would therefore yield to God as our sovereign with a sweet delight. It is, of course, our great security. Uh, John Calvin, who talked a lot about the providence and sovereignty of God, we sung one of his uh, hymns at the beginning of this service. And he, he talks about this a lot there, reigning omnipotent in every place. 
Therefore, give us strength in every trying hour. It is the church with a sovereign God that is courageous in the midst of evil, for it believes not, not burying its head in the, ha- in the sand, ostrich-like, or fiddling while Rome burns, pretending that there is not evil. It faces the evil front on, face on, and also believes that God is the God who has a plan for good. Seems to me that a biblical doctrine of God's sovereignty and purpose is the shield of faith that enables God's church to resist the flaming arrows of the evil one, not succumb to pressure, not give way to opposition, and stand firm when the day of evil comes. As I was uh, reading around uh, this passage this week, I um, read back to B.B. Warfield, who wrote a uh, paper at one point on providence. And a lot of things he said there which are fascinating, but the most interesting one, I've got a quotation here, I won't read it out, it's quite technical. But the, 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 the most interesting thing was his analysis of what took place after the Old Testament and before the New Testament with the Pharisees and the rabbis as they began to lose a sense of who God really was. See, in the Old Testament, there is this strong doctrine that God is the king, that is, he is sovereign. Man may plan it for evil, but God plans it for good, for the saving of many. It's all the way through uh, the Old Testament in the narratives and the teaching portions. And yet B.B. Warfel said that one of the signs of the decay of the people of God after the Old Testament was this idea of God's sovereignty began to be muted and even denied. For it is when we grasp onto God's sovereignty that we are therefore able to be courageous. God's sovereignty in the Bible never mitigates human responsibility. No, it always works to give courage. It always means that if you this morning are feeling as if you are in the pit, that this in a sense is your day of evil, that you don't have to deny the evil, you don't have to pretend that it is not evil, you can say, yes, this is wrong, but I worship the God who is God, and he has a plan. A plan for good and for saving. Of course, that's the very heart of the Christian message that we remember just last week at Easter. The cross, the greatest evil that was ever done, and the greatest good. Well, God is sovereign. Do you believe that? I hope so. Let's pray together.
Lord, we know that um, the uh, evil plans of men are here very clearly described, and the sovereignty of God, your sovereignty, does not deny our responsibility. That we uh, make choices and decisions and take initiative or fail to take initiative and will be held to account for all those things. And so, Lord, as we read about this jealousy and anger of the brothers, we, we pray, Lord, that you would release us from any of that. Would you forgive us for our sins? We read here of not just jealousy and anger, but sexual uh, violations. We pray, Lord, that you'd have mercy on your people. And, Lord, that you would grant us, as we look at the effects of evil, a fresh repentance. We think, Lord, of the uh, Tower of Siloam that uh, was brought uh, to uh, you, Lord Jesus, in the uh, New Testament. And you were asked, um, did they do worse things than others because they were killed by that tower? And your reply, Lord, was no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. Lord, the true wonder that we're faced with this morning is not how is it that a good God and an all-powerful God allows evil things to happen. The true wonder, Lord, is how is it that a holy God, sovereign God, allows evil people like us another day's breath. And so, yes, we bow before you and repent. We ask that you would have mercy again. Would you have mercy on your church here and around the world, Lord? But, Lord, we also do take comfort in this other reality that is just as true, that you planned it for good, that you are weaving together the threads of life, even the evil ones. And, Lord, we confess what a mystery it is. What a mystery. But you planned it for good. You weren't looking the other way. You weren't pretending that uh, there wasn't danger or difficulty for Joseph. It was your plan. Because it was your plan, Lord, we can worship you and take courage and confidence that that plan is for ultimate good. And so we bow before you this morning and pray that you would, therefore, as we look at the wrong, allow us to take strength that your plan is indeed for good and for the saving of many people. In the name of Jesus, amen.